Isaiah 54, give your attention to the reading of God's perfect, inerrant, infallible, life-giving, and trustworthy word. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay down your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant to my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, 
giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which it was sent. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. In the previous chapter, Isaiah described famously the suffering servant. In this morning's passage, he answers the question, what difference does it make? It's an appropriate text for this traditional Easter Sunday in many ways. If you're a church calendar person, what could be more fitting on Easter than the prophet's description of the miracle of God's grace in salvation? And if you're not a church calendar person, that he puts the enjoyment of this grace in the context of the church is even better. If chapter 53 is a poetic rendering and a prophetic rendering of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, the same can be said for the next several chapters and the resurrection. Today's passage focuses poetically on the restoration of God's people to the covenant they've broken and to the expansion of that covenant to the Gentiles. All are invited to come to seek God and to be saved. The next chapters, like the resurrection itself, throw down the gauntlet with those who will not believe. They warn of the danger of refusing God's grace and rejecting his son. They call all to repentance and therefore to salvation. And that's why this section of Isaiah, like all of Isaiah, is an invitation to hope. Hope is difficult, isn't it? Verse 1 calls Israel both the barren one and the desolate one. The circumstances of her exile are humiliating and deflating. It says she has not been in labor and she doesn't have children already. It says she's barren, that is, she's unable to have a child. It says she's desolate, that is, without a husband and so without hope of conception. God had promised Abraham long ago that he would be the father of many nations. Looking at the circumstances in exile, what hope can God's people have that that promise is still true? The language of verse 4 draws out the dramatic consequences of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. Shame, disgrace, and reproach. But it draws those out in the context of grace from God that takes those things away. You will not 
be ashamed. You will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame and the reproach. You will remember no more. You see, God will do what he said he will do. And because he said it, and because he will do it, his people, even in exile, can have hope. This is what the gospel does. It brings together and connects two things that in our mind cannot occupy the same space. Barrenness and joy brought together in the same passage. Exile and rejoicing. That's God's amazing grace. Sing, O barren one. You see, the resurrection wasn't the answer to a seasonal cold. It was the answer to death. Neither is God's grace the answer to just minor problems. Widowhood in youth, that's the metaphor of this passage. Widowhood in youth, it represents the dashing of the high hopes of marriage In an unexpected and tragic way, the passage intends to give us an overwhelming sense of disappointment as we compare our expectations to what life has become in reality. And it's there, wrote one pastor, amid that frightful darkness where it's not easy for the captives to see God's smiling face. But it's there, in that disappointment and darkness, that God promises to put away the shame and the reproach. It's there that he promises the work of his grace. It's there that he extends the invitation to hope. The widow now has the promise of love from a husband who can never die. Her children will be more than she can count. Her home will be expanded and expansive. Her offspring will possess the nations. She will sing. Can you believe it? Isaiah says that by faith, we can To strengthen our hope, God reminds us of Noah in verse 9. As he had remained true to his covenant with Noah, so he would keep his covenant of peace with his people. After the flood, which was caused by the wickedness of mankind, it was self-inflicted. The question was, how could the people trust that God would not again destroy the earth? And the answer was, they could trust Because he had promised. And now Israel's circumstances again made God's people wonder. Jerusalem and its temple are destroyed. God's people are carried off into exile in Babylon. And yes, again, it's all self-inflicted. But it still feels like the end of God's promises to them. But it wasn't. God will keep his promise. After the flood, God hung up his bow in the air, as it were, as a sign of peace. 
every rainbow was for Noah and those who follow him in faith an invitation to hope, to rest in the security of God's promise, that the earth is secure not for any human reason, but because God has promised. And Isaiah points out that Israel and the church that follows has now an even better promise of peace. He is risen. Even if the mountains were to depart, he is risen. Even if the hills are removed, he is risen. God's covenant of peace with us will stand firm. Kids, the Hebrew word there in verse 10, we could also translate tottering. You've seen a teeter-totter. It's pretty wobbly. You've seen mountains before. Some of you have seen enormous mountains. Would it be hard to be secure if the mountains were tottering? If everything around us, the whole earth were shaking, nothing would seem safe. But Isaiah says, even if the mountains tottered, the love of God and the peace he gives his people would still stand firm. Adults, many of your lives has been filled with tottering, haven't they? You read verse 11 and you can relate. Oh, afflicted one, storm tossed. Isaiah calls you to look to God's promise. I will lay your foundation with sapphires, your pinnacles of agate, and all your walls of precious stones. No, that's not how we would describe our lives, is it? It's not how we would describe the church of Jesus Christ on earth. But that stability, that security, that certainty is the lives and the church that God will make by his grace. You read the description of that city that God is building. And one author asks, who built this? Who had the imagination? Who had the wealth? And the answer is God did. And it's the city where his people will live forever. It's the security of our lives in him. It's the stability of the church of Jesus Christ on earth that not even the gates of hell can withstand. We can't build this. We can't build it. We build lives that totter. And our first parents, we were given the garden paradise to tend, and we turned it into this, this world that we now inhabit. We made a world with brokenness, shame, guilt, idolatry, and death. But God, in his grace, built a new city, a new garden, and a new creation. When we look back to the resurrection, this Sunday and every Sunday, it's like looking at the rainbow, the proof and the reminder that God will keep his covenant. Every Sunday we come back in here and the church on earth has survived another week of its attack on the gates of hell and its proof and a reminder that God will keep his covenant. Every week, No matter your faithfulness, God calls out to you to come and to drink 
and to taste and see that the Lord is good to come without money and to eat and to buy. Every week is a sign that God will keep his covenant. Every week is proof that if you take God up on his invitation to hope, it will not be in vain. Maybe you're afraid of hope because hope leads to disappointment. There are lots of hopes that we've had that have led to disappointment. That's why it's so important that God says that when it comes to his promises, hope will never put us to shame. I think that when it comes to God's promises, the bigger risk isn't that our hopes are too high, but that we're setting our sights too low. Abraham was all worked up, scheming on his own, waiting for a son. But Abraham had been promised a nation. Isaiah calls us to remember the grandness of God's promises. What we are willing to think God might do in all kinds of areas probably isn't big enough given the magnitude of his grace. Hope is not hard because God disappoints us. Hope is hard because life is hard and we're so inadequate for the task. Life makes us physically and metaphorically hungry and thirsty. And we labor and we labor and we labor and nothing we do in our own strength relieves those burdens. But God... But God, verse 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. God, in his grace, comes to us in our exhausted poverty and offers free, rich food. He invites us to stop exhausting ourselves to stop spending our resources and laboring for that which does not satisfy, to come to him and to receive for free that which can finally and fully satisfy. That's God's amazing grace. Life is hard because we've made it hard through our rebellion, stubbornness, and idolatry. We exhaust ourselves and still can't find security and satisfaction. We're full of guilt and shame and deserving of wrath and death. And what does God do? He calls out, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, Buy and eat. For those who do not know Christ, it sounds too good to be true. But we in Christ are quick to tell them with joy that this is the gracious invitation of God. It's it's real. But then we turn from them, the unbeliever whom we would call to have hope, And to trust in God's promises. And we find that following God in faith 
doesn't fully end our struggle with hope either. You see, we may believe, come to the waters. But do we believe that the barren one can sing? We believe and have hope for the life to come. But do we believe that God can make us to sing even now in a life with all these difficulties? And in his grace, God tells us how it can happen. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, the same God who saved us will teach us to sing. The sower can't make the rains come down on his crops. The sower is utterly dependent on God for the rain. And the unrighteous cannot make herself righteous. She must depend utterly on God who will freely pardon. And likewise, growth by grace in those who believe learning to sing requires complete dependence on God. Earlier in the passage, God promised that his children would be taught by the Lord. The glorious city that will be God's church isn't going to come from our strength or wealth. As another teacher put it, all that belongs to the church proceeds solely from the grace of God. We are sparkling jewels as a consequence of being taught by the Lord. People will come to God because the Spirit draws them through the preaching and teaching of the Word. How beautiful are the feet of he who brings the good news. And by that same means, by that same Word, we will grow by grace. The call for all of us every day is to seek the Lord. His ways are so far beyond our ways that we need our lives to be completely transformed according to his word. And that happens not by our own power or works. But when it happens, it's how peace and joy can be truly ours even now. We all agree, I hope, that in the resurrection, God transformed reality. He conquered death. He did what could not be done. And if reality itself can be transformed by his power and by the word and the word made flesh, then so can we. Our glorious city and joyful singing are in shadow form now. There's still pain and struggle all around us. But I like to think of that shadow, I like to think of God's promises as more like shade on a hot summer day. A a, a place where we can step for rest and respite from the world. Verse 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That's not just then, that's, that's now. We can taste and practice righteousness, peace, and joy even now because Christ was raised from death 
and the grave. She who was barren and desolate is given children. Those who are far off are brought near. All who believe can live now with peace and with joy. God promises life, both sustenance, just the bread and water, but did you notice he also offers satisfaction, wine and milk, the good stuff? And he offers them to people who, by virtue of their idolatry, should be feeding on the ashes of chapter 44. If that isn't cause for peace and joy, it's difficult to understand what it would take. It seems impossible when we are considering only our circumstances. But we need to remember that these promises, the words that Isaiah has written here, were given to a people in exile. A people whose home was destroyed. A people whose temple was desecrated and then decimated. A people who were hauled off to a land that was not their own. Everything was taken away. And yet Isaiah says, sing, O barren one. The promise of resurrection and exaltation was for a servant who suffered, who was tried and convicted for crimes that were not his own and was hung on a cross to die in shame. Circumstances make the promises harder to believe because we don't want hope to disappoint us. But circumstances do not make the promises of God any harder for him to keep. God will keep his promises. So what should we do? He tells us, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. One teacher observes that as we hear the good news of the sin-bearing servant of the Lord, the mountains of frost and ice within us begin to thaw. It's only the gospel of a surprising salvation that even in this life can make us laugh and cheer and sing. It's why we have to hear it Sunday after Sunday. It's why the role of the church in the world is to proclaim that good news of Jesus Christ week after week. That's what the church is, the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel means good news, and good news should make people sing. That teacher concluded that the test of a church's faith is not only in the wording of her creed, but in the gladness of her worship. That's why the church, too, will grow by a power that is not our own. It's a fact. Water comes down into the earth and brings forth life. And it's a fact. His word goes forth 
and saves. God does actually save all he calls to himself. And his word goes forth and his people, by his grace, live saved lives. They learn from him. They relate to one another according to God's standards, telling one another the truth about God, forgiving one another as they have been forgiven and inviting all into this new way of living. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. We're supposed to be, by God's power, creating the church, which is this refreshing shadow, this shade into which all who believe can step for a respite from the blazing sun of the world. In the gospel, God is inviting us to a joyful party. Despite our circumstances, we can be saved and we can be changed by the work of this gospel in us. Whatever happens around us, we can experience joy and peace because of the security of those promises and the power of the resurrection and the certainty of his coming again. Easter is an annual celebration of the triumph of Christ over death. And that triumph, both Testaments teach us, is the power and promise for God's church. One pastor reminds us that Christ suffered not for himself, but for the church. And that's why, having spoken of the death of Christ and the suffering servant, Isaiah now moves to the church that we may feel more deeply the value and the efficacy of his death. His death didn't accomplish something in the abstract. It accomplished something for us and in us. And by grace, Christ's triumph is the church triumph and a triumph that we have the privilege of celebrating every Sunday, every week where God re-invites us to come to bring in the trials and struggles of life and to set them at the foot of the cross and then to sing for joy with those around us who themselves are also trophies of his grace. And here we can do what the world finds impossible because in the flesh it is impossible. We can lay down our guilt and our shame because the servant has suffered for us and made us righteous. We can lift up our heads and sing no matter our circumstances because we've cast our cares on him who cares for us. We can listen to God and be changed by his word because miracle of miracles, he can change us. And we can go forth in joy and in peace because he is risen.